Yesterday I was walking up our 100 foot driveway just after dusk. I watched a cougar sprint ahead of me. She wasn't more than six feet from me. Until that moment, I don't think I understood what it meant when someone said, I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Without a mirror, I can tell you certainly, I have hair on the back of my neck. Without thinking, I raced up to the car at the top of the driveway. My instinct was to run. My 14-year-old later told me that because he's done a deep dive into all things Canadian wilderness and cats of the Canadian wilderness, that next time I shouldn't run. I should just stand tall and strong. Not to corner her, of course, but not to race away from her. Just be present and unafraid. When we engage in certain conversations like the one we're going to have today, for some folks, running away from the conversation is first instinct. In the words of Amber O'Neill Johnston, today's guest on the Homeschool Mama Self-Care podcast, we need to be willing to have hard and uncomfortable conversations and be willing to listen to other people's stories. Who is Amber O'Neill Johnston, you ask? Amber lives in Georgia, nestled among the pine trees, hammocks, and zip lines, with her husband and four kids. Her happy place is the back porch on a rainy day, preferably with a giant mug of hot tea and a good book. And although she was raised in air conditioning, somehow the woods is where she feels most at home these days. She's a regular contributor to the Wild and Free Homeschool community. She writes and speaks about the beauty of an inclusive, culturally and socially conscious home environment. You can hear her sharing diverse literary mirrors and windows on Instagram at Heritage Mom Blog. And she's the author of A Place to Belong, Celebrating Diversity and Kinship in the Home and Beyond. We're going to talk about can learn to be supportive and inclusive in our homeschool communities. And we're going to learn to stand, not sprint, from possibly uncomfortable conversations. This book is a guide for families of all backgrounds to celebrate cultural heritage and embrace inclusivity in the home and beyond. But before we do that, I want to say welcome to the Homeschool Mama Self-Care Podcast. I'm Teresa Wiedrich, Homeschool Life Coach at CapturingTheCharmedLife.com. This season is dedicated to those homeschool moms who want to shed what's not working so they can show up authentically, purposefully, and confidently. So if that's you, welcome homeschool mama. If you've already read Amber O'Neill Johnston's book, before you listen to this episode, would you shoot me a message to tell me how it's impacted you? Oh, and you can also view today's podcast episode in full length on my YouTube channel, Homeschool Mama Self-Care. Okay, so without further ado, a very warm welcome to Amber O'Neill Johnston. I'm Amber O'Neill Johnston, also known as Heritage Mom. Uh, I have four kids. They're 13, 11, 9, and 7, and we are raising them outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, I've been homeschooling from the beginning, and I am the author of A Place to Belong. You can see back there behind me. And um, it's a book that really focuses on um, celebrating diversity, but also inclusivity and kinship um, yeah. within the family and within the community and the wider world. So 
Uh, I spend time blogging and writing and speaking and then just momming and homeschooling and all of those good things. Sounds like my life. <laughs> and, and add in a little bit of trying to figure out technology behind the scenes. Yes. Yes. So it's such a delight to have you here. Your book, you've heard this a few times, I'm sure, but your book comes at such an ideal time in the last few years for us to really dig deep into the how do we embrace diversity? So I'd love to hear you, your intention behind the book or when you first decided to write the book, what was for you going on? Well, um, definitely I was looking for a book to read for myself and I wasn't expecting to write a book. Um, what I wanted was something that um, would really help me with focusing on my own children in my own home and helping them to feel seen and valued. Um, but I also wanted a book that brought you know, us together and talked about how um, community is important and raising our children to love one another. And mm -hmm. I could find one and I could find the other, but they seemed always to be like opposing views. Like as yeah. if, if you're focusing on your, on your own children and, um, you know, kind of making sure that they feel secure and valued, then you're you're doing that at the exclusion or you're ranking that above the need for us all to come together. Or if you're focused on everyone being together, it's kind of like, well, ignore your own personal needs or differences or whatever makes your family unique. And I was like, well, gosh, I don't want to choose between those two. Like, why can't I have both? And um, like I said, I couldn't find that. And so I wrote that. And it was basically my attempt at saying neither one is more important than the other, but that both are necessary and it's okay to tell our children that you are valued and important mm -hmm. and also you're not more important than other people. You know, I think that's was like the rub there. So that's, that's the story behind the book. Okay. So, you know, I've heard that question a lot, um, how to engage our children to really see other people, but I hear it usually in the context of how do I get my child not to be entitled? Yeah. And, and I think that's tricky because our culture is rather entitled. And so it's tricky to actually explain that to our kids. And I remember telling you about the story when my oldest daughter was three and she's just really little, she was in the mall with me and she in within a matter of 10, 15 minutes, very loudly spoke the words, mom, why is there a woman feeding her husband. He was in a wheelchair and he couldn't use his limbs. Said to me, why is that woman black? Or why is that woman fat? And as a mother, I was mortified. But I've heard you speak um, to your own story with your daughter, how she became aware that she wasn't just the same. Would you share that story and how you would engage conversations like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, basically, I, my husband and I were raising our children just to really be colorblind, um, to be, uh, to be honest, and just to say, like, everyone's the same, right on the inside. And yeah, there are differences on the outside, but they don't matter. And um, I thought that sounded good. It's the way that I was raised. And, and I thought we were doing the right thing. But the key is she wasn't going for it. And she was very much aware that, mm, no, I definitely do look different than the other children around me. And when we go places, I notice it. Um, and so when that was first brought to my attention um, in a very like kind of um, alarming way, 
I realized that we had perhaps gone down the wrong path. And I started researching and talking to more people and realizing that rather than ignoring and telling kids that what they obviously, so obviously see with their own eyes is not true or not real or not important, there was a level of like shaming there. So she's like, I'm different, but my mom won't even admit it or won't let me talk about it. And so therefore there must be something wrong with me because I'm supposed to just blend in when I don't. And so we kind of flipped that over and totally changed our approach and perspective in that, yes, actually you do look different. You look different than her. She looks different than him. That person looks different than this person or they're different in some other way. And wow, isn't that awesome? And let me tell you why it's awesome. And also to give examples of the awesomeness, because it's one thing to just say it. And that's kind of the approach I took at the very beginning was like, you're awesome. But I didn't have any books that showed awesome people like her. And we weren't studying any awesome people that had done any awesome things that look like her. And um, we weren't hanging out with a lot of awesome people that were like her. So we had to change a lot of things, our lifestyle and our home library and the places yeah, we yeah. went and, and the people we talked to and just became very, very intentional. And um, over time, that intention became natural and comfortable. The last few years, at least it feels to me that there's a greater sense of consciousness of how to see the world, engage other people. And we're all being challenged to engage that differently. And I see this huge surge in the homeschool community everywhere, but definitely in the homeschool community where there is a, a significant rise in homeschooling in the black community. Are you seeing that as well? Oh yeah, I run a support group. It's a nonprofit support group um, for black homeschooled children and their families. I say it like that because the children are all black, but all the families are not black. So it's for black homeschool children and their families. And there's been a huge, you know, surge in terms of our membership and just the interest people have um, in it. And it's been really great. And at the same time, I think there's been a greater awareness of all of the black families that have been homeschooling all along. You know, there were already a lot of us, but I just don't think that necessarily, we weren't necessarily on the map until COVID and all of that. So it's both. It's a greater recognition of the families that have been doing it for a long time. And then an influx of new families that got a chance to try it during COVID. And they were like, hey, you know, like, I think I like this. As a white woman speaking to a black woman, both homeschooling, we've both done this for a long time. Just like you on your website, you share you like being in the pines or being in the woods. Me yeah. too. If I showed you right through the window, it's gorgeous. It's all snow covered. My favorite place to be there's a hammock. Um, there's something else that you said there. I was like, yeah, being on the veranda on a rainy day with a cup of coffee. That's yeah. Me. That's me. And we both have a love of traveling and all those things, but we have different stories. We have different histories. We have different social awarenesses or, um, you know, just different things that we know about our past history. So how do I engage you? How do I support you? What do I do to be more inclusive in my own homeschool and my own family? Mm, that's such a good question. I think um, one is being willing to have like hard or uncomfortable conversations. And yeah, they don't yeah. even have to be, I think when we think hard or uncomfortable, people immediately think challenging conversations, like I'm going to challenge you in this way. I don't even mean that. I mean, it could get to that at some point, but you could be challenging me. I could be challenging you, but that's later. I think in the beginning, it's just um, a willingness to, to be comfortable if I come and and say, listen to what somebody said to my daughter today, 
or gosh, we're having this issue with our neighbors. And I really think it has to do with the fact that we're black, um, which is a true story. Um, and, you know, that, that that doesn't scare you away or make you feel like, oh, I don't want to talk about this, like danger, danger. She's talking about stuff about black people, you know, and I think that my white friends that I'm the closest with and, and we're very, very close years of friendship. And I think a lot of that has come from our willingness to walk past those initial difficult barriers that make things awkward to get on the other side of that, where we really can just talk as sisters. And sometimes one of us says the wrong thing, to be honest. It's hard because you do, you're trying to be comfortable and close and you let your guard down. And then sometimes you're like, oops, maybe I went too far with that. Maybe I can't let my guard down all the way. And each friendship, you know, you'll have to test those boundaries and see. But then, you know, we apologize or we talk about it and we pick ourselves up and move on. And so to me, the willingness to like meet me in the truth of like what my life really is like and that I don't have to like put on a fake smile and sugarcoat everything. Um, to me, that's where I feel the most supported. It's I think everybody just really wants to be known. So we recognize we need to spend more time understanding other people's stories, their experience of the world. But how can we do that if we haven't already learned how to understand ourselves and understand how our stories have informed how we show up in community and how we've chosen to raise our families? I believe we need to become more self-aware. And that is a long-term process and many opportunities in our lifetime will provide for it naturally, or at least it can. But we can also turn toward ourselves when we experience our big emotions, or we have unusual experiences, or we have people in front of us that we don't understand. We can learn how to practice self-kindness, self-compassion. We can learn to nurture the nurturer. We can do that by building self-compassion strategies in here, in our hearts. And though I wouldn't suggest that there's just one right path to understanding others, well, maybe being in relationship with others, that'll probably help. <laughs> being willing to grow in relationship with others is a sure way to be more open and willing to understand others. But understanding ourselves and caring about ourselves, listening deeply to ourselves, is how we are engaging other relationships. So learning how to be self-compassionate is a practice a lifelong practice that we can nurture. In the last couple months, I created and released the Self-Compassion for Homeschool Moms self-coaching tool or a course that you can find over on my website, capturingthecharmlife.com. It could be a useful tool for you to grow in self-awareness and self-compassion. Okay, now back to the episode. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, coming from my perspective, um, like even if you look at my family history, uh, maybe I won't go into detail, but there's an Academy Award nominated movie that's coming out called Women Talking, women being sexually violated mm -hmm. and, and uh, like from age three all the way to um, seniors and how they had to deal or how they were told to forgive, move on in their stories, no matter what trouble. How do we... I guess I think two things right now. One is, so I have my own stories, mm -hmm. but I, I recognize that my stories aren't your stories. Mm -hmm. 
especially after we both went to Ghana. So that was like a whoa, whole different kind of eye-opening thing, which I want to ask you about. You and I both were taught see people for what they are. Don't look at the color. Mm -hmm. The the value of it is to say, I value you just because you're a human or I see you as a human because you're human. But also we have all these stories and we don't just have our stories. We have generations of stories and it's influencing opportunity and it's influencing how you're received. So I think for me, the stories are everything really. I mean, that's the foundation for our relationship. Um, whatever relationship you choose to have with someone. And then it's kind of the balm that heals because through stories, we understand each other and it's through stories that our children learn as well. Um, And I think that it's important to share the stories and to, for us to all refrain from like ranking them. You know, it's almost like, oh, you think that's bad? Well, what about this? You know, I hear that a lot. And I think pain is pain. And if yeah. we can recognize that with each other and empathize um, with the other person's story and experience, um, I think that that's part of it. And it's not a matter of like trying to one up or anything. It's just a matter of like my all people have a story, right? Like my people have a story. I have a personal story. Your people have a story. Mm-hmm. You have a personal story. And I yeah. think when we yeah. can look at each other and say that there no story has more value And, you know, right now with things being so divisive, it can go either way, right? You have um, people who are trying to um, really mute the stories of Black African-Americans, you know, that they don't want to talk about what really happened or how it was. And then on the other hand, you have people saying that, you know, white Americans, you need to just be quiet. Nobody's trying to hear your story. Your story is not important. You need to stuff it and bring these other stories to the forefront because they've been hidden for so long. And I think that that is really, it's dangerous on both sides. And I think those are fear-based responses. Like I can, I have to prioritize this story over the other story in order for things to be made right. And I think in reality, it's just like, can everyone's story be told? And that really is the story of America, the way it was intended. And it, 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 was broken along the way and things we're like hobbling through, you know, and, and we haven't always done things the right way, obviously, but the, the true story of America is that all of our stories get to coexist together. And I think um, it's very difficult because it requires humbling, right? It requires humility because at any given time, my story may not be the one that needs to be told that day or in that way. And how can I humble myself without feeling fearful that I won't get a turn or that my Mm -hmm. voice won't be heard. And so like, how do we create those safe spaces and understanding for one another? And I think a lot of it comes down to choice, right? We can choose if we want to be friends or if we don't, Mm -hmm. and we can choose if we want to care for each other's well-being and the well-being of our children or not. And right now, a lot of people are choosing no, I choose myself over you. I choose my kids over yours. And that's where a lot of the pain is coming from. I, I just want to, I, I so appreciate that you were given the opportunity to write a book at that time and that your perspective is being shared with at least a very large school community. And I'm so grateful for that because I really appreciate the things you're saying. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. 
We need to listen to these stories when it hasn't been listened to. You know, I've seen that in my own my own journey where I was pretending stories weren't existing because it didn't fit the narrative of the bigger culture of what I was living in. And so I couldn't speak the story. And I see that in so many people's journeys that they become, when they decide, forget it, I'm owning the story, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not. And I need to own the story for me, but I also need to put something down and say, this happened. And and so then people can receive that as, well, that's reactive or that's whatever they want to say. But actually, that's what happens when you've been ignored for a long time. Yeah. So so it's time to listen to stories. So thank you. Thanks for going into a deep dive into a direction we didn't say we were going to talk about. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. So let's bring us back. You had some really excellent questions um, about homeschooling. So bring it back to homeschooling. What do you love about homeschooling the most? Oh, goodness. That's really easy for me. It's the first thing I usually share with people when they're thinking about it. And that's like, I love spending time with my children um, a lot of time. And I remember, you know, in my 20s that I was torn. I just had, um, this wasn't in my 20s. This was really early 30s. Um, I just had my oldest and I had an opportunity, I wasn't working, but I had an opportunity to fill in for someone who was on maternity leave. And I was like, oh, okay, that'll be a great way, you know, make some extra money or whatever. And I started doing it and I was like so miserable. I would like leave during the day and go nurse my little girl and all of that. And I shared it with a friend and she said, well, you have to decide what's more important to you, quality time or quantity time because she worked a lot of hours and she was like, I love it like this because we have really good quality time. Like I pick my, you know, I pick my kids up, we go do nice things. We go to Disney, we do all this stuff. She's like, but I don't spend very many hours with them. And I thought about that and it, I loved how she put it because she didn't say one was better than the other. She just said, you have to choose. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, I hate this. I was like, I want quantity and quality. Um, I, I really knew in that moment when she asked me to think what, what it is I wanted, I did want a significant number of hours with my little girl. And so that's kind of um, remained the same. I like waking up and us being together and spending the day together. So yeah, that's beautiful. So what are the, what are some of the challenges you've experienced? Oh, wow. That's a, another good question. Um, I think for me, um, my biggest challenge is like balancing the needs of all of my kids. So they have wildly different personalities and abilities yeah. and desires. And so I find that I'm spending, I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that everyone is getting what they need. And mm -hmm. When they were little, I could kind of like herd them. They were like a little herd. And like we all would go to the same places at the same time and we would all do the same things. And as they got older, I'm like, oh, you you don't like going to the farm? Oh, you love going to the farm. Oh, okay, you really want to spend a lot of time with friends. You'd rather be at home. I'm like, uh-oh. So <laughs> I think that that juggling is part of the one of the, one of the challenges. And then that's mm -hmm. with the kids. Then I have my own personal big challenge, which is sleep. Yeah. So for me, when the house is really quiet at the end of the day and everyone else is sleeping, that's when I should go to bed um, so that I can feel fresh and well-rested and really patient the next day. But those like nighttime quiet hours mm -hmm. are so precious to me. And so I end up like just loving it and just 
really staying up really late doing little projects or reading or just thinking, you know, or playing on my phone or whatever. I mean, it's not always something deep, but um, that's a struggle I have. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. That is uh, something that happens for a long time and a lot longer than the first few months getting your child to sleep re or regulate her sleep. No, it's years. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that is. And it's, it interferes sometimes with our perspective in the day. Uh, I don't know about you, but my experience of not having enough sleep usually means that I don't see things with quite the same rose-colored glasses. Yes. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. So what are some things that homeschooling's taught you? How about mm. you? Wow, that it's I have grown so much since I started homeschooling. Mm. And I think that um I definitely get a sense like that I'm doing exactly what it is that I should be doing, primarily because of all of that growth. Um, it's taught me to slow down. Um, I've always been really, really driven. And when I started homeschooling, I had to come to realize that everyone, including me, um, is so much happier when I can just take a chill pill. So I value my children's free time and kind of their um, ability to, uh, just relax a little bit and learn more organically when I tend to, my mind is like, we can do this and we're going to check this and do that. So I fight against that all of the time. Um, and I think the other thing is um, kind of some people mistakenly think that a lack of rigor equates to kids being allowed to do whatever they want or however they please or in any old kind of way. And um, for me, I found that I don't know any families really that are like that, but uh, relaxing from what we maybe experienced as students, like a, to give you an example, when I was a teen, 13, my daughter's 13, I mean, I was killing it. I was like studying all the time after school and I was in a million different activities, activities, and then I was trying to do like my best at all of them. And um, I was really stressed out. And, um, but I didn't want to stop any of it because I felt like competitive. Like I have to do these things so I can succeed in life. And I look at her and she's just having a grand old time, you know, <laughs> sometimes I think like, oh my gosh, like, is she like scared enough about her future? And I'm like, no, I'm like, I don't want her to be scared. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want her to have a rich experience and her experience is rich, but she's not stressed out. Because that was a presumption that you had to be afraid to go to the next step. So that was something that you were taught and you don't see that fear in your children. Right. And it kind of makes me scared sometimes, you know, because <laughs> I think like, well, if they're not afraid, then what will spur them on? And I think, wow, they're, and I look at them and I'm like, they're naturally paced at, and they're moving Engaged. forward. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're naturally paced and they're moving forward. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think this idea, when we talk about purpose and helping our children find their purpose, um, or what rabbit trail are they going down? I think secretly, we're like hoping that that will become their profession. <laughs> that we can know, oh, I saw you when you were three, and you love that, and you keep doing it. But sometimes they go down rabbit holes, because they just want to go down rabbit holes. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, my husband gave me some perspective years ago, and it was just so wise. And he was like, why does every bit of their childhood have to be in preparation of being for being an adult? Like, can they just be in this stage? Like, can they just be kids rather than, okay, well, we'll sign them up for this because if they get really good at this, this will help them do this, which will help them with this when they're grown, you know? And he was like, 
dude, can they just play or can they just sign up for this thing that they're horrible at because they just want to do it? And it it really helped me a lot to see like, okay, have long, everyone has long-term perspective. That's healthy, but Mm -hmm. it's also healthy to just allow the children to just live in the place where they are right now, which is childhood. Yeah, because we went off the beaten path by homeschooling. Uh, Maybe it's more beaten now, but we went off the beaten path. And then we signed up to be on the beaten homeschool path if we are trying to make sure that they get everything by a certain phase. Like, why are we doing that? And, you know, you're identifying for you it's fear. And for me, it was I didn't get the opportunity for that myself. So I want to make sure my kids have everything, which not coincidentally is something that I've learned about me, that a lot of what I'm trying to do for my kids is about me. It's not actually paying attention to my child right in front of me. Your book is called A Place to Belong, a guide for families of all backgrounds to celebrate cultural heritage, diversity, and kinship while embracing inclusivity in the home and beyond. Clearly that was written by you, not me. (laughs) Tell me, tell me what does that really mean for me? How do I actually use that in my own homeschool? So I think like in the, in the book, what I talk about is, you know, most of the book is focused on home and what are the things that we can do within our own homes that um, build our children up? Because the premise I have is that it's really hard to love someone um, and to be willing to hear their stories and to care about them and to be interested in them when you feel unheard and uncared for and unloved and uninteresting or that no one's interested in you. And so I think by building them up for the purpose of them going out. And I say, like, if we help them build deep roots, they'll spread wide branches toward other people. And so the end result is, you know, towards the end of the book, I talk about the other people, right, outside of your home and how this building up and this focus and intention within your home with your own child is going to pay dividends outside the home. And um, so I think that's important because especially now we're really wanting our kids to love people and hear about them and do all this. And and sometimes it's at the expense of our own child. Like I'm not, I want you to listen to everyone's story and I want you to hear it. And I want you to know. And it's like, but I'm not telling you any of your stories. You know, I'm not, you're not listening or hearing what my childhood was like growing up or what your grandmother experienced or, um, uh, I'm not reading books to you about people like you because you need to focus on other people, you know? And so I think that that was what I was saying with the part that you just read that, yes, it's about the diversity, um, and inclusivity, but, and, and within and outside of our home, but with the purpose of that word kinship with the whole reason for it is that our children will come together and that we will come together with other people. Yeah, so many things you said there. Just, you know, first of all, you talk about uh, literary mirrors in the book. I'm curious if you would expand on that. You said at the expense of our kids that we're trying to get our kids to focus in on others and what they need or how they need to be acknowledged and at the expense of our kids. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, what your experience was in Ghana. Because when my kids were in Ghana, we were in a very rural village. And there were lots of people that did not see a lot of white people. And so then there was a word that um, people would yell out when they would see us. And for me, I could understand in my context that they simply, I'm like fish out of water. They don't see me. But my kids had a hard time with that. 
And I'm wondering if you also had an, um, an experience like that because it's different being black from Africa and being black from the United States. So yeah, a couple things. So books as mirrors, literary mirrors, um, those are books in which our children can see themselves and their families and their communities and their experiences reflected back. Now it doesn't necessarily only relate to ethnicity. So it could yeah. be someone um, uh, uh, that rec someone that recognizes their homeschool, you know, a homeschool character. My kids get so excited when we run yeah. across a book where a child's homeschool. Um, that could be one example, or maybe a farming family, agriculture, mm -hmm. rural family, or someone who lives in an apartment in the city, you know, an urban story, a story that revolves around urban life. All of those things are important. A, a story about someone who um, has the same special need as a child where they're like, oh, I recognize myself in that person. But for my family, it definitely was focused on ethnicity because that's what was missing from all of our stories. And so for our, in our home, a mirror, the, the most readily available mirrors, uh, those are books about black people. And if you drill down, it's not just any book about Black people, because I, I remember having to talk to one of our local librarians who would always pick books out for my children. And we'd come into the library and she'd be like, oh, I have the perfect books for you. And I had to tell her after a while, like, OK, my kids are Black and I appreciate that you saw that and that you set aside these special books about Black people. But my kids live in semi-rural Georgia and in very suburban um, my husband's here, has been here all along, and they're not struggling with like inner city gang warfare. And so <laughs> while there are Black people in that book, I don't see that as a mirror for my children. Right. And um, not that they can't read those books, because that's an important window um, for them to understand. And in some ways, it is a mirror, but it's yeah. not the type of mirror that I just want to study influx of for my kids. So she was like eyes wide and, and she, but she totally understood and ended up being one of our biggest advocates and really okay. started picking some really thoughtful books for my kids. And, but we had to have that uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think those are kind of the ideas behind books as mirrors. And then books as windows are, are when children are looking and, and being, and they're able to learn about other people and the way they live through their books. So it's like looking through a window. Um, so those are kind of those things. And for my family, we use travel as another window and a mirror, you know, at times. And so we like to take our children to different parts of the world and school there, um, you know, for two to three months at a time. And so in the fall, we were in Ghana in West Africa. And um, yes, the interesting thing is I also expected what you experienced like when we were there. I'm like, we're coming to Africa, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. West Africa. If there are white people, which we didn't see for three or four weeks, by the way, uh, if, if there is a white person, I can really see how they're going to stand out and everyone's probably going to be really surprised. Um, what I wasn't prepared for is that we were like the white people <laughs> and they're looking at us walking down the street and they use that same terminology, that same word they called out when we were walking by. And I asked the guide, I'm like, Oh, what are they saying? Like, you know, and he was like, Oh, they're saying white girl. And I was like, huh? What? Like that. Must have been confused. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what in the world? I don't get it. And yeah, clearly yeah. we're not white. And he was like, yeah, it's the same. It's interchangeable American white. No, it's not. And so it was very interesting because as I told someone recently, I went there, I wanted to take my kids there to remove us from this black white dichotomy and how it's just so prevalent in the United mm -hmm. States. And we're going to go back to the motherland and we're going to be with black people and it's going to be like this. 
And it wasn't like that. It was wonderful, but we were outsiders and I didn't mm -hmm. think it was going to be like that. And so what I realized it's like kind of too black to be just American. You're African-American and there's a lot of strife in your country over that. And then you go to Africa and you're too white. <laughs> you're too um, diluted from yes, yes. true African heritage to be one of them. And so really you can look at it and say you don't belong either place or rather I looked at my kids and I'm like, what this says is you cannot define who you are by other people because depending on where you are and who you're around, they'll tell you you're something else. And I'm like, so you better just be you and figure out your identity and it's not going to be placed in what man says. Um, Cause that was confusing for us. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, kids, yeah. I'll be brief with you on this after I figure out what just happened. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually what I read from Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, yeah. a South African. He would have said, I've heard him say brown. He was brown. They know him as brown, not black in, you know, um, in an area with very distinct class or case systems, um, you know, the apartheid anyways. And so he comes to United States and he's like, he's even, you know, I don't know if you know him, but he's got yeah. a lot of uh, ability to mimic different Yes. Yeah, really well. And so he is he's grasping onto all this, you know, lingo that he's thinking this is an American black lingo. And then he goes onto the streets of New York for the first time and someone thinks he's Hispanic. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's beautiful. What you said is that you embrace who you know you are instead of always looking as almost a different kind of mirrored experience. Who am I looking to others saying, who am I? So that's, that's, that right there is a beautiful lesson to teach your kids. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It wasn't what a lesson I expected, but that's what came to us. So that's what we took. Yeah, for sure. So what other things did you learn there? Um, well, I learned that um, I've spent a lot of time, obviously being American, um, on the history of enslavement and the after effects mm -hmm. through our history studies and just socially and all that. But I really hadn't examined much the history and after effects of colonialism. Yeah. And I knew about it, obviously, but I'm talking about really digging into it the way that I have um, mm -hmm. with our country's past. But while we were there, every day we experienced some of the leftover damage that has been done there. And I saw it, the way that it most intimately affected my family was through colorism. So my children are different shades of brown. And I saw very distinctly the preferential treatment towards my lighter children than mm -hmm. my darker children in a place where everyone is black. And I just, it was heartbreaking to me because mm -hmm. I, I've experienced that here in the States. And I'm just like, oh gosh, you know, that's the leftovers from the big house and people who are out in the field and it's really sick and it's, you know, it's something that we have to deal with and we need to fix. But I didn't expect it in West Africa. You know, yeah. I thought that they would know more or know better. And there I found that these are the things that linger long after colonialism ends that society still has to deal with and they impact people on a daily basis. So that was one thing. Um, you know, going in their museum and seeing their postage stamps and it had like Princess Diana on them, you know, their older stamps and everything. And it was kind of like, huh. And we visit, we got a chance to visit a school 
that was really exciting. And we spent several days that the kids got to go to class and all of that. And I would work in the school library while they were in class. And I looked at every single, single book on the shelf and they were all British history, yeah, British yeah. stories. There were no stories about children in Africa or African history. We yeah, went to yeah. multiple branches of children's libraries, same thing. And I mean, this is like mind blowing to me. I'm heritage mom. I talk about children's literature all the time. And I'm like, I am in Africa and I can't find a book in the school library or in the public library about Africa. It was mind blowing, heartbreaking. That was my experience. In fact, the libraries are not new at all. They're very old. Um, when we were, we also had a field trip to a school, which was cool for our kids because they'd not gone to school before. And the first time they did it was in rural Kenya and very, very <laughs> rural Kenya. Um, and I had a similar experience as you did. In fact, the principal had asked me about an ed the education system and how he could improve his school based on my Western education experience. And I thought, A, weird that I'm being asked because I'm a homeschool mom. and B, I was like, I'm representing the West. Also, like, mind altering for me to actually speak to that. And I couldn't speak to that. Yeah. Um, but I went into, um, into Kenya with a, the first time we went into Africa, rural Africa, with a very different understanding. Yeah. Of that. And just like you, it had a huge shift or it had a huge internal thing where I understood that I really needed to un or listen to people's true hearts, their stories, even though I may not intuitively understand their story. And one of the women that was working in the hospital compound where we stayed, um, my husband is a medical physician, so we were volunteering at a hospital. And the um, a woman there had married a physician as well. And she had kids the same year that I did. Uh, three different years and her life was very different than mine mm -hmm. and we just had a very similar parallel experience but a very different experience of life and that was so eye-opening for me to realize it doesn't matter where you are in the world we all want the same things for our children for our communities we want to be generous and gracious and and you know be at, at peace and happy with our family all the same things that was huge for me as a shift. It was a beautiful shift. You know, when you talk about being happy, that was another thing that the kids and I spent a lot of time talking about. My kids, um, in all their, you know, imperfections, their children and their learning and figuring out the world, but they often, when we would get home in the evening back to our, our house we were renting, they would feel sorry for a lot of the people that they had seen during the day. And it was like, they're, they must be so sad. And I said, did they look sad? And the kids you were playing with today, and they were like, well, no, I said, I didn't see any sad kids. They were running around playing, eating, laughing, beating you at soccer. Um, yeah, I said, always. you have to be very careful of making the assumption that because someone doesn't have what you have materially, that they are therefore depressed and hate their lives. And right. at the same time, sure, we met a lot of people who are dying to get to America and that every driver we had was like, I wish I could go back with you guys, you know, and, and I get that. And so there's a feeling of appreciating what you have, but not projecting the way that you would feel if you lost your video games, that that must be how that child without video games feels. And that's yes. not necessarily the case. Everyone's in their own context and living their lives. They have families and friends and celebrations, lots of celebrations. We saw People celebrate. 
And I said, I see a lot of smiles and laughter here. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to be careful about how we consider the value that someone else is getting from their lives. Absolutely. The materialism element. I, you know, the first time around we brought a bunch of stuff and, um, you know, frankly, by the time we went to the second time, I myself felt like the Samaritan's purse um, red Christmas boxes yeah. didn't have value unless they were packed with um, school supplies, medical supplies, or a soccer ball. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We good. They're good with soccer balls for sure. Bring on the soccer balls and they are remarkable. My husband also tried racing. He likes running. So he was trying to race some of the kids when yeah. we were in Northern Kenya. And <laughs> there's no way. That's a lot of Olympians come from that area. So no way. But yeah. Yeah, it was a remarkable experience there. Um, all sorts of things that I've experienced there essentially was challenged with how I was seeing the world or how I was experiencing things. And I'm sure my kids were too. I had a moment with a 16-year-old as well um, in northern Ghana. He was dumbfounded that I didn't know the year that um, Ghana was no longer under British rule. Yes. And that was a moment for me because he was truly in shock that I didn't know. And so it was truly a moment for me where I realized, so it turns out we don't have children with all sorts of knowledge bits because we will not know everything. And the things that we're taught in this part of the world were taught because somebody here thinks it's an important thing to know, but you will never know all the things. So it was actually a Ghanaian boy that taught me that. I think that's good. That's really good. The other thing that I wanted to share is that my husband's and my first date was watching Amistad. <laughs> Don't ask me why. You guys went right in. <laughs> really did. He, I didn't really know him very well, but at the time I thought maybe he's too deep for me. <laughs> but anyways, it was, it was an interesting one. So we watch it every year. And I was so disappointed when we didn't get to go and visit the, um, they called it a castle. I forget what you call yeah. that. Did you get to go visit there? Yes, we did. We got, I, I mean, as you know, I got sick there, but so we didn't yeah. get to everything. Um, but yes, we did get to go. Yeah. And then did you get to visit Frankie's, the uh, hamburger shop downtown? Yeah. Was that? I don't know if I don't, uh, Frankie's. I feel like my kids went, I was hospitalized there for six days. Okay. And I'm actually, there was a place my kids were, I was there like, this was the best food, mom. It was the best food. And it wasn't far. They had walked from the hospital. And I think it was Frankie's yeah. to go, but my kids did. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. So travel, if you, if people or homeschool families aren't able to travel to all these big trips how do we actually bring in a greater you know expansive way to approach learning about other people yeah and you know to be clear my family loves to travel but the realist you know people are like you travel all the time and i'm like not really i talk about our travels all the time but we actually have only left the country every two years yeah so most of the time we are here and we're living and learning at home and i think that obviously i'm going to say books because that's a huge um area, but I also think videos because books give you the descriptive language, the stories, the ideas, but the videos, that's a blessing that generations prior didn't always have. And to be able to see what people look like um, and maybe some of the things that you'll see if you were to travel there. Um, there's nothing like, you know, that visualization to go along with the book. So we spend a lot of time with books and, and videos and 
Um, it could be movies or documentaries or just honestly YouTube videos that show us um, kind of a, a snippet of life in different places. And I try to get like, yes, the historical part, but really just like the everyday, you know, kids walking to school or talking in the video. One of my kids' favorite videos is um, there's some boys in Morocco and they're playing like a game on the street or whatever. And they're you know, he's like, oh, man, like you can tell he's like, you're cheating. And, you know, we can't understand the language, but my son knows exactly what those boys are saying to each other. So um, I think those types of things um, I find to be really helpful. Obviously, developing relationships with people here in the States. Um, we're very blessed in that um, name a place in the world. We have a community or more of those people here in our country. Yeah, most countries can't say that. They tend to be all mostly whoever that, you know, yeah. those people are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so reaching out and building friendships and going to restaurants and different mm -hmm. performing arts ventures and all of those different things. I think there's not just like one path. It depends on where you live and what your family enjoys. But I think the key is being intentional, looking yeah. for yeah. opportunities and taking advantage of them. And the opportunities will be different for each of us. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, you know, when you're being intentional with your kids like that, I notice on your Instagram page, on your book or your um, book page and also your website, Heritage Mom, you have some really great resources for families to both explore certain books in a unit study approach, but also sharing books that you see as valuable. So this last week, I think you had one that one of your kids really liked called Sugar. Is that something that they did really love or... They weren't on, they were on the fence. Yeah, it was something my daughter enjoyed. And I think it was uh, something we don't ever talk about. Like in most of our books, when you talk about history, you're talking about people who are enslaved and they're working cotton fields. Well, this girl in this book, she's in sugar um, plantation. She's picking sugar and she sugar cane and she's not enslaved. And so it was just a different and she forms a really close relationship with um, an Asian boy. And so that you know, they're just these different nuances that were made it different than our typical books. But yeah, I like to share books on my social media and on my website that maybe don't get the attention from like the mainstream homeschooling lists. Um, and, you know, it depends. People always ask me about that and they'll ask me from like a very negative perspective. Yeah, I think some people intentionally leave diverse titles out. I think that's true. I also think a lot of people just don't know. They read with their kids the same lists that someone else read. And then so they made their list based off of what they read with their kids. And yes, I don't yes. always see the malice or malicious intent behind it. And because a lot of the people are my friends, I, I've gotten to know them in this community. And when I talk to them about it, like, hey, girl, why well, don't have no black books on your list? You know, and it's never really like I don't want my kids reading black books. It's usually I don't know what to pick. I'm so afraid right. of putting right. the wrong thing or something that's not a good yes. representation. And so I, you know, have done nothing. And I right. feel like that's what I heard the most. And so I try to come in and fill that spot. I'm not going to convince malicious people, but to the mom who wants to share diverse stories, but just doesn't know which ones are worth their time, then I'd like for her to be able to trust me. Do you have a few favorites? I mean, you actually share a lot of books. So I, I do. I, I just shared one. Yeah, I shared one this morning on my Instagram called Toby. 
Um, and it's an old book and um, it's interesting. Some of the books I recommend sometimes have a little controversy behind them, but I never ignore that. I consciously choose whether I'm going to push through the controversy because I think it's worth it or to not use the book. In this right. book, it was written by a white woman. And a lot of people had an issue with that because it's about a family of black children and they, they're um, farming family. And the whole, there are no illustrations. They're all photographs. So they're um, actors, they're po posed, these, you know, they're boys and families, member, people in her community when she wrote the book that they took photographs of. So I love it for the reflection, that mirror that it provides my children um, of a free black farming family having fun. It's a reader, like a early reading book. Um, and the controversy, I think like you always have to allow people the chance to speak. And when I go back and look at articles where she's being interviewed, it wasn't like she was like, oh, I'm a white woman. I'm going to tell these black people's story because I can tell it better than them. What she said was she had students. She was a teacher and her black students were like, how come there's nothing for us? Nothing with us in it. And she was like, honey, I'm going to write something for you. Like, Aww. you know, and she knew that she could get her book published. And that at that time where they were living in the South, that a black writer who wrote the same thing would not be able to get it published. Uh -huh. And so people could argue, you know, like, that's wrong. That's right. And I'm like, you know what? She saw a need for children that she loved and she, she filled that need. And That's here beautiful. I am yeah. in 2023, still reading that with my little black boys. And so yeah. I think like I look at someone's intent matters and um, I see what she did as an act of love rather than appropriation. Um, yeah. Not that that doesn't happen because that totally happens, but yeah. I think that we can't assume. And so okay. that was Lovely. a really good book that I love a lot. I really love how you're really just expanding the conversation in a way that I don't always hear. I hear it very, okay, one side versus the other. And I love how you're just really hearing it right there or sharing it right in the middle, or at least it feels like you're really listening to people. You're listening to the real stories. So I'm curious, how do you approach books like the original Swiss Family Robinson or all those books? Because, you know, when I grew up, we watched Swiss Family Robinson in series on TV. And I was like, that's like the coolest ever. Big, you know, tree houses in the middle of, I don't know where it is. They don't make really it very clear, but somewhere on an island. And then I read it with my son a few, a couple years ago. And I'm like, great, finally, we're going to read this together. And we were both like, whoa. <laughs> like, holy cow. Yeah. In so many things, like in the patriarchal misogynistic realm and yeah. also you know just like don't get me started so yes. what do you do with stuff like that what's your perspective on that so it's really interesting I remember one time um I was talking about this with Julie Bogart she asked me this question and I yeah. I'm gonna share the same answer I yeah. think that the more work you're doing in your home to have these conversations to talk about difficult things to teach your children um history and and to honor truth and people, the more of that work you're doing, the more latitude you have to read those books. Um, yeah. And so the less comfortable you are with doing that work, the more you should probably stay away from those books because your kids aren't being taught necessarily how to process the inputs that they're receiving through those stories. And, um, and that's no diss because everyone's in a different place in their journey. But I just like, if you're not in the place of your journey where you want to talk about and really dig into these ideas, then it's not fair to your children to read these stories just like it's a little cute little story and not address the 
damaging aspects of it. Um, I also think, so in my home, we read classic books, even the ones that are problematic, and we talk about those things, but we don't have a total steady diet of only those things. And I right, see that right. a lot in the homeschooling world where we love the old books, almost to the point of worship in some ways, and we're not open to more of the contemporary titles, which tend to be a lot more diverse and more balanced and more aligned with where we want our children to think and believe. Um, and so I think you, you know, you have that, that balance enough, you know, part of the reason I read the, the stories with my children, one is because I don't always want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like when you look past those aspects and you talk through them, not ignoring them, they're really good stories. Yeah. And uh, there's a certain type of storytelling element in some of those older classics that it's very difficult to find today. So if you're not reading those books, your children's ears won't be accustomed to that type of language. So that's one reason. Um, the other reason is um, that I want my children to be able to participate in conversations. And we are a literary society, you know, so someone's like, oh, my gosh, stop being such a Pollyanna. Uh, if your kid doesn't know who Pollyanna is, they don't understand that as somebody who's always wearing rose-colored glasses or, uh, okay, Scrooge. You know, that's something I've said to my husband before. Okay, Scrooge. And if you've never read Dickens, then you don't know what that yeah. means. And so I want my kids to participate in conversations that have literary references. And we have our American kind of um, group of books and if your child doesn't ever read them, there is an element of conversation and nuance that they would miss out on. Uh, right. so I think that's kind of how I, I work through that. I very much am grateful that you had the stage to share your thoughts, because I love listening to what you're saying and really getting me to, to think about how to engage that. So I love it. You talk about how history was one of your least favorite subjects in school, ironically, because of the boring facts and the figures and the lack of connection. So how have you done things differently with your kids? Oh my goodness. I hated history. So <laughs> I totally hated it so much. Um, I think with my kids, we have focused on one historical time period for a school year. And that's been really fun because we dive deeply. We're in the 1800s right now. So we're reading poetry from the 1800s and studying art from the 1800s and reading history books and, and um, novels set in that time period. And it really helps with, we take a lot of field trips that have to deal with things from that time period. And then it's across grades. So all my kids, even if they're reading different books, they're all reading from that time period. And so it helps a lot of family conversations. My husband gets in on it. Um, and so that has made it so that um, history really comes alive in our home. We can find my daughter who likes to cook. We'll find recipes. And, you know, it just, um, it's just, it's like a, um, I can't think of the word, but like a multimedia, multidynamic or whatever, um, multi-sensory experience um, versus just like memorize these battles in these yeah. days, which is what I remember most from history. Yeah, that is beautiful. So how do you feel about it now then? Yeah, I, I love it. I yes. just see history as the story of man. And yeah. for that reason alone, it's really, really interesting. And so I don't drill dates, but I tell stories. And that's how my children have come to love history. And that story element, reading stories, learning stories, writing stories helps build empathy inside of us. I learned that when I was doing, um, I was walking alongside um, an MFA I, I was in a course essentially to learn how to write literary fiction and the biggest benefit of reading and writing stories is to actually become more compassionate mm 
Mm, I, can I would see love it. Yeah, because like you said, you're seeing through mirrors uh, or, or um, you know, reflections, learning yeah. a little bit about hearts. I would love to hear what you want for others to really receive from your book. Is there a quote or a passage or a section that you want people, homeschool moms, when listening to your book or reading your book, to really absorb this is what your heart is in your book? So this is um, coming from the idea of just how heartbreaking a lot of the things that are happening in our country are right now and how divisive and how much we're fighting. And so I said to homeschool moms, despite what the world would have us believe, we can choose to agree on the truth. We have much in common. Our differences do not negate our shared humanity. And we can raise our children to be comrades. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, you know, we don't have to be a part of what's happening that we see is so destructive. We can choose to do it differently. We can choose yeah. to do it differently. Beautiful. This season I have created um, or I've intended each episode to help homeschool moms be more authentic, confident and purposeful in their homeschools and their lives. I'm wondering if you have a last piece of encouragement you give to homeschool moms that um, that reflects your heart and your your words, your ideas in your book from your homeschool or your homeschool life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it's that um, listen to your heart. Um, that's so important, but be willing to consider that you might need to change your mind. Yeah. So I've had some really strong feelings about things over the years, and I feel really strongly in a different way now. And, you know, to be able to look back and be like, oh, gosh, bless her. Um, you know, I was so sure. And now I'm so sure that I, I wasn't right or that I that's not what I want or that's not the best thing. And um, but I want to I, I do trust myself, though. Mm -hmm. Still, I still trust myself to know what's best for my family. And so I think to be able to humbly hold both of those, to be able to trust yourself um, as the mother and wife in this home and also be willing to change your mind. Yeah, those are beautiful words. And I am truly grateful to have had this conversation. I'm sure it's going to spur on all sorts of different thoughts and ideas. So where can people find you online when they, they want to connect? Yeah. So uh, you can find me at heritagemom.com, which is my first love is my website or blog. Um, and I hang out on social media at Heritage Mom blog on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a really pathetic YouTube channel. If you find it, then your reward is those little <laughs> bit of that are there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Thanks for being here, Amber. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. That means a lot to hear from you. So if you can shoot me a message over on Instagram, Facebook, in my Patreon support group, or on my website, Capturing the Charmed Life, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what insight you've gained from this episode. And if you would invest a moment in me, could you leave a review on Apple Podcasts? If you grab your phone, find my podcast, Homeschool Mama Self-Care, and go to the bottom of the page, you'll see a button where you can write a review. When you do this, you're sending a message to the algorithm to share this podcast with other homeschool families. And if you want to support me in the work I do, I would be so grateful for that too. You can do that over at patreon.com homeschool mama self-care. 
When you do this, you have a special invitation to join me for two hours each month for support or whatever you need in your homeschool at about just $10 a month. You can find that at patreon.com slash homeschoolmamaselfcare. I'm looking forward to getting to know you and your homeschool family. Until next week, I hope that you and your kids can turn your homeschool challenges into your homeschool charms. You've got this, girlfriend.